All right, you guys. Scott here. It's another Q and A show. Um, I got my good buddy, and uh, now let's call him uh, contributing editor to the Libertarian Institute, something like that. Eric Schuler on the line. Hey, Eric, how's it going? Good, Scott. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. Um, so I don't know if you saw this. I thought it was pretty funny. Actually, I'm lying. I do know you saw it. It was pretty funny. Um, last time we did the Q and A show, someone in the comments said, "Man." That guy, Eric, is such a jerk. He didn't let Scott say a word the whole time. Because they had you and me confused. I was the jerk, and you're the nice guy that I was talking over. But so, I, I thought maybe I should explain the setup here a little bit. Uh, people always want me to do like a live show, um, or like a, you know, a half-hour podcast that's just me talking or whatever. I got a tweet like that this morning, in fact. Um, but I hate doing that, sitting in a room and talking to myself. If I'm live on the radio, that's totally different. But just recording myself and putting it out there, eh, I just don't like it. I'd rather talk to you. So I figure you can be Ed McMahon and I'll be Johnny. And uh, you give me a little bit to, to uh, run with and I'll run. So it'll be, you know, it's kind of an interview. It's kind of just me talking to myself at the same time sort of deal like apparently some people want to hear. So it's the Q&A show. Yeah. It's a good setup, and I'll uh, I'll try not to interrupt you anymore. Yeah, stop interrupting me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So, big news. I got a new sponsor. Um, people might remember Charles Featherstone, a uh, previous guest on this show. He lived in the Middle East for a while and wrote some great articles uh, for LouRockwell.com uh, back a few years ago. He's a friend of mine, really good guy, and he wrote this new novel. It's called Kesslin Runs. And it's a novel about the near-future American dystopia, uh, where the the big attack has happened, and America is in a state of emergency and martial law. And uh, this young girl, Kesslin, runs away from her foster care, where it's actually a horrible uh, child trafficking type thing. And uh, she gets away and is helped by a guy who's a veteran of the wars in Yemen and Venezuela. <laughs> um, and it looks like it's really good. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it looks really good. It's available now on Amazon.com. Kesslin Runs by Charles H. Featherstone. And you guys will be hearing me talk about that uh, a little bit more uh, on the interview show as well. But I urge everybody to go and check that out. It's available in Kindle and in paperback there on Amazon.com. So ain't that cool? Oh. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I needed a sponsor, too. By the way, anybody else wants to sponsor the show, my email is scott at scotthorton.org. We'll see what we can do. And then you've got an announcement for us, too. That's right. So we have we officially have our Scott Horton show on Reddit, uh, Scott Horton's private uh, subreddit group on there. And we're, you know, Scott's going to be hanging out in there, answering questions. And we're also going to use that to kind of uh, as a feed for what questions we want to talk about on the Q&A show, uh, feedback on the show, all sorts of things. What are your thoughts on it, Scott? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. You know, we had this hashtag SHSQA on Twitter, and that didn't really take off that well, but um, maybe this would be a little bit of motivation for people to join up the Reddit group. So this is something that, and then we can ask questions uh, asked in there. Uh, Tom Woods, for a very long time, has urged me, um, including again today, to go ahead and do a private Facebook group. But I hate Facebook, and so I didn't want to do that. But So you had this great idea. Well, let's just do it on Reddit then. So the deal is, uh, anyone who donates five bucks a month or more, 
uh, by way of PayPal monthly subscription donations or at patreon.com slash Scott Horton show. Um, we'll get the keys to the Reddit group. I'll forward your, your uh, email stuff on to Eric and Eric will sign you up. And uh, we already got quite a few people. Well, I don't know, almost 10 or yeah. something uh, so far. I just announced it on a couple of the most recent interviews. Um, but uh, it already looks like it's going to be a success. I'm really happy about it. I've got it, um, one of my permanent tabs open next to my Twitter tab here. So um, it should be a cool thing. I think it's a great idea of Tom's and yours to do it. And uh, hopefully we can make a little something out of it. And um, so people can find out how to do the PayPal donations at scotthorton.org slash donate. Um, and then I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash scotthortonshow. And yes, anyone who is a regular donor to the Libertarian Institute, that counts as well. So I don't want to dissuade anyone from uh, donating to the Institute who's uh, already signed up to Institute. So that definitely, uh, who's already signed up to donate. So uh, that definitely counts. Any, any regular donors to the Scott Horton Show or to the Libertarian Institute for at least five bucks a month, which is basically everyone on Patreon and, um, and pretty much anybody who's signed up to donate um, on, uh, by way of PayPal as well. And then we'll see you in there. As uh, Eric was saying, it's reddit.com slash r slash Scott Horton Show. Yeah, getting a little camaraderie in there. Yeah. Hey, uh, one other thing to clarify on that. If they're donors uh, per interview, if it's like a quarter per interview, that would still get them in there too, right? So it doesn't matter if they're monthly or per interview, however Right, works. yeah. I mean, the, the situation on, on Patreon is you donate per interview. Oh, okay. And, then, and by the way, I should mention anybody who donates um, – a dollar per interview on Patreon also gets two free uh, audiobooks from Listen and Think Audio, uh, which is libertarian audiobooks. Lots of great libertarian audiobooks, including my book, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, uh, could be one of those as well. So if you sign up on Patreon, you get a double dose of something. Great. And then yeah. I think we just had one other housekeeping item, which was kind of some issues with the Libertarian Institute site. Yeah, right. it's been a wreck, but we're getting it fixed. Uh, had all kinds of server difficulties over the last couple of months, but we're just getting everything straight now. So, uh, and and you know what? We got some good writers. And you know what? We're looking for some good writers, too. If people want to submit articles to the Libertarian Institute, I'm pretty much the editor there. So just send them on to scott at scotthorton.org, and I'll be happy to take a look at what you got. We got a brand new one coming up. Uh, should be up there tonight or tomorrow by Hunter Dorensis. It's really great about um, World War II and arguments for NATO and that kind of thing. Uh, arguments, uh, arguments made for our permanent entangling alliances, and he takes those arguments on and destroys them quite aptly and ably. And um, we got Craig Cantoni, and we've got Zach Sorensen. And um, a lot of great, a lot of great stuff. Sheldon Richmond, of course, uh, writes TGIF every Friday. One of the greatest libertarians in the history of the universe, uh, and my good friend, the great Sheldon Richmond. So, check us out at libertarianinstitute.org. Oh, and you know what? I should also add that um, uh, we have a, a great bunch of podcasters. And we're trying to kind of make a thing out of that. It's sort of our comparative advantage, uh, in a way. So we have. Um, uh, Mance Raider, who you know is more and more becoming a very popular libertarian uh, radio host and 
meme warrior on Twitter there, um, author of The Kids Are Not All Right, <laughs> which they are certainly not. Um, and then also Kyle Anzalone uh, does a great foreign policy podcast called Foreign Policy Focus there, uh, often talking with our good friend Will Porter as well. So And, and we're working on adding some more. So uh, that should be cool. All at libertarianinstitute.org. Yep, that's right. So now you want so, to ask me some things, and then I'll say some things. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let's move on. So I guess it's inevitable that we need to cover uh, the Russia situation since mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor uh, did, of course, occur last week. Figure <laughs> it was just no one like crystal knock. They said that on CNN, like crystal yeah. knock. Holy crap! And you would mm-hmm. think that the ADL would go after him for that. How dare you trivialize Nazism this way? But hey, you know, 10,000 people rounded up and sent off to death camps. Uh, You know, that or a press conference are pretty much equal. Yeah, more or less. So I imagine everybody's probably heard about this. uh, And I'm sorry if you had, but we'll catch people up. And so I'll just go over, kind of have the transcript in front of me from the press conference. This is really the main kind of question that everybody focused on after... uh, on the news. This is what really caused people to lose it. So the context here is that earlier on, they, you know, they gave their little speeches like a normal uh, press conference. And at some point, Putin had said that, you know, we didn't interfere. And then this reporter from AP comes in and this is his question. So he says, I think a question for each president, President Trump, you first. Just now, President Putin denied having anything to do with the election interference in 2016. Every U.S. intelligence agency has concluded that Russia did. My first question for you, sir, is who do you believe? My second question is, would you now, with the whole world watching, tell President Putin, would you denounce what happened in 2016, and would you warn him to never do it again? That's a lot more than two questions, but Mm -hmm. what are you going to do? So Trump's response to this is he kind of goes off on a tangent um, about the Hillary Clinton servers and emails. And then when he comes back, he says, you know, my, my people came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others, and they said they think it's Russia. Now, I have President Putin here. He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. And so that is what caused everybody to kind of lose their mind. Yeah, uh, and boy, did they lose their mind. And actually, there's another line later that also got excerpted a lot. He says, like, so I have great confidence in my intelligence people, but I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. And so between those two things, people interpreted it as obviously Trump is taking President Putin's side, and there's no reason to ever distrust the U.S. intelligence agencies on this or anything else, and so it's treason. What say you, Scott? Well, it ain't treason. <laughs> I mean, God. If, and, you know, Trump himself likes to throw that term around. Um, I think he accused uh, some members of Congress of treason for not clapping for him enough at one point, and people went, hey, 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 treason has a definition. Let's not go throwing that term around too loosely, especially you don't want a president accusing people uh, in that way. And, um, you know, I think I read a thing the other day that said only 10 people have ever been convicted of treason in American history. Uh, This is a very uh, tough road to hoe. Legally speaking, it's a very tight definition. First of all, you have to be at war. And then you have to, according to the Constitution, actually take up arms on the other side or provide direct aid and comfort to the enemy. And you still can't be convicted, even if you're guilty as hell, unless on open confession or confession in open court or with at least two witnesses. 
saying that it's so. Um, and then again, in in two hundred and thirty something years of uh, of the so called republic here, only ten people have ever been prosecuted for treason. Um, and so, what are we talking about here? That he believed Putin, the leader of Russia, who we are not at war with, who we haven't been at war with Russia since Woodrow Wilson invaded Vladivostok back in 1919. Uh, was the last time we had a war. Even all the spies, um, like Robert Hansen and Aldrich Ames, who uh, were convicted of espionage for Russia, they were not prosecuted for treason because it wasn't treason because we weren't at war with Russia at the time. And those are two incredibly damaging spies who gave just everything over and and led to the killing of of you know undercover CIA officers, uh, you know, and spy uh, not officers but you know agents and spies assets who got rolled up and killed and this kind of thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, as far as that goes, it's, this is the epitome of hyperbole. Um, and this is, it comes from uh, primarily the, the, the one that got the biggest, um, you know, uh, the most attention out of this was John Brennan, who was the head of the CIA under the last administration. So that's not just Anderson Cooper boohoo crying on CNN. That's the most recent director of the CIA accusing the sitting president of treason. And I think, you know, we're kind of at a point where all the hyperbole on all sides of the Trump debate and especially the Trump-Russia debate is so out of control that I think maybe even somebody like you or me, we kind of lose the the perspective and the context of think about just how serious that is for him to accuse the president of treason and not for doing something actually traitorous like John Brennan did backing al-Qaeda in Syria from 2011 through 2017, um, but for disbelieving unnamed, uh, I guess some named, but mostly unnamed uh, anonymous officials making claims to the Washington Post. Uh, Yeah, please uh, give me a break. And then, you know, mostly what's just going on there is the media is trying to put him in the position of saying that his election was illegitimate, that he couldn't have won if Putin had him put him in the chair. Well, he sure as hell, even if that was true, he's not going to admit that that's true, which it's not. Obviously, the whole thing is a damn hoax, but that's a separate issue for the moment. Um but even if it was true, he's not going to sit there and say, yeah, it's true, Hillary Clinton would be the president right now if it wasn't for my good friend Vlad here. He can't say anything like that. Um, and so he goes, yeah, you know, there's both sides of the story and this and that. But um, we don't know what supposed evidence has ever been shown to him. We do know that no evidence has been shown to us. None. Zero zilch nada. Just claims by men who lie for a living. And so, um, you know, whether at the FBI or the CIA and the rest of them, and the Washington Post, for that matter. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I don't know what anyone would have could have expected him to say there. Um, I guess he could have said, yes, well, I told Putin I was very concerned and I would like him to not do that. But for him to not say that doesn't amount to anything. 
Um, not to me. I don't, I don't see what the deal is at all. Um, yeah. Other than there's obviously a huge agenda here to push Cold War with Russia and to push for the delegitimization of President Trump, who, after all, is not legitimate. I mean, he did win the election. But he should have already been impeached and removed and convicted of war crimes and buried under the supermax. Uh, he's as guilty a war criminal as Barack Obama, George Bush, Bill Clinton, George Bush, or I guess probably Ronald Reagan was guilty of war crimes. Yeah, look at Nicaragua yeah. and El Salvador down there. So, um, you know, he absolutely is just as illegitimate as any president, just as fascist as any president of the United States of America. And you got to kind of appreciate the irony that he's being accused of this kind of specific illegitimacy when he was, you know, for years, the the most famous and most powerful, um, you know, pusher of the theory that Barack Obama was not a liberal Democrat from Illinois, which is horrible enough. It ought to be horrible enough for you. But no, in fact... <laughs> He's a secret Muslim from Kenya who usurped John McCain's rightful throne, even though even if, which this is such nonsense, but even if he was born in Kenya, he was still the son of an American, which the courts have already ruled about what counts as uh a natural born American or exactly the phrase in the Constitution there. Um, you know, John McCain was born on a Navy base down in Panama. So... Um, he was still a natural-born American citizen as well. Barack Obama was a born American citizen, no matter where his mother was traveling at the time. And so the whole thing was completely nonsense anyway. And it was basically just an attempt, not just in the most partisan way, but an attempt to undermine Barack Obama under the theory that his blackness somehow made him un-American. Which is kind of funny in a way. It's ironic because Obama, the first black president... I mean, if you don't count um, Calvin Coolidge, um, was uh, not the son, not descended from West African slaves, right? His father was his father was from Kenya um, and was a free man, right, from East Africa, and uh, he's you know not you know in, in other words, virtually all blacks in America are descended from people who have lived here for four and five hundred years, right? Uh, since the very beginning of the settlement of this continent. Um, you know, you talk about blood and soil. Yeah, it's this is their land. Um, they got, a, a, as far as that kind of thing goes, a better claim to it than almost any of us, right? All of my family moved to this continent in the 20th century, you know? Um, but anyways, as far as that goes... Um, but so this was somehow supposed to delegitimize Barack Obama. And so if anybody deserves this kind of harassment, it's Donald Trump. Really, screw him, man. He absolutely is reaping what he has sown himself. The only problem really is, though, that nobody was agitating for conflict with Kenya. Nobody gives a damn about Kenya. But we have a massive and major and terrifying and incredibly dangerous push by the entire American national security state for confrontation with Russia. And I'm not saying they want nuclear war, but what they do want to do is sell a bunch of nuclear bombs and nuclear missiles and nuclear submarines and nuclear bombers and and every other big-ticket military item that they can in the name of confronting Russia. And I just heard this story again the other day from Andrew Coburn, who had a source who was a lobbyist 
who was at a meeting of a bunch of weapons lobbyists, uh, arms manufacturer lobbyists in Crystal City, which is... I think south of Washington, D.C., like a suburb of Washington, D.C., where all these arms manufacturers are from. And it was the day that the Russians seized the Crimean Peninsula without firing a shot, by the way, and only in reaction to America overthrowing the government of Ukraine twice in 10 years and threatening to kick them out of the Sevastopol naval base. But anyway, when they seized the Crimean Peninsula, uh, it was euphoria at this meeting of lobbyists of the arms manufacturers. Finally, an excuse to really get Cold War II kicked off. You know, America's been picking the fight, this fight with Russia since 1996, 1998, under Bill Clinton, expanding NATO and kicking the Russians while they're down. I mean, really, they kicked them while they're down all through the 1990s, um, robbed them blind. Um, but, you know, in terms of military expansion into Eastern Europe, taking advantage of Russian weakness, launching the war in Kosovo and uh, to break Kosovo off of Serbia in 1999. And then, you know, with the, the further NATO expansion, the color coded revolutions that took place in the George Bush years, um, the Rose Revolution in Georgia, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, the pink slash yellow revolution in Kyrgyzstan, in Kyrgyzstan. Um, in and they tried it in Lebanon they uh, with the Cedar Revolution. Um, there was another one in um, forgetting, but there were there were a few more of these things, uh, these coup d'etats against uh, pro-Russia leaning uh, politicians all over their former sphere of influence, and then you know really culminating with the war for Al Qaeda against. Uh, Russia's ally Bashar al-Assad's regime in Syria, and then the second coup in Ukraine in uh, uh, late February of 2014, which included the use of Nazi militias, uh, right sector, and the Azov Battalion, and um, this group, the Social Nationalists, the Svoboda Party, with their own Nazi militia as well. and who, uh, as I said, threatened to kick the Russians out of the Sevastopol naval base, um, you know, leading to the, the seizure of, of the peninsula by the Russians. So finally, when Putin gets off of his, you know, back legs and, and does something about all of America's provocations, hip, hip, hooray is the, the uh, attitude at Lockheed and General Dynamics and Northrop Grumman and... Um, and all of these military industrial complex firms, and of course at the Pentagon, because now all these people get to increase their power and influence and the size of their McMansion in Alexandria, Alexandria, Virginia. And so, um, they, you know, this is the best thing that ever happened to them. So Trump comes in and says, well, I want to get along with Russia. He says, look, I'm, I'm for expanding all the terror wars. Wherever you got a Sunni with a rifle, let's bomb them. But that's not good enough. You can't sell nuclear submarines to confront the Taliban, uh, but you can in the name of the Russians. And so that's the game going on here. And this is why so much of the national security state opposed his election in the first place. Uh, and and why, they'll, why they'll stop at nothing to smear him with this uh, Russian traitor nonsense that's going on right now. Um, Which is really an interesting miscalculation on their part, because actually... Trump has been just about the best possible thing for the national security state in terms of the Cold War. I don't think, you know, just because it gave them such a talking point that now, look, there was Russian espionage. Now we have to respond. Whereas 
if Hillary won, you would you would have had a different narrative. It would have been more focused on Syria and less on, you know, Putin proper, I think. Right. Um, but it's a really interesting thing because this was obviously great for them. Right. And meanwhile, he's bombed Assad, which Obama didn't. Obama backed yeah. down on bombing Assad, although he did. Uh, although Trump called off support for Al Qaeda against Assad, so I guess maybe that's a wash. But he's ramped up sanctions. He put troops in, uh, escalated the number of uh, troops in Poland and in the Baltic states, right on Russia's border there. Um, and uh, what am I forgetting? There's a few other things on the list here. Oh, he, he kicked all their, the arming all their ambassadors out of the country. Didn't he support arming, uh, giving lethal weapons to the oh, right. neo-Nazi groups in Ukraine? That's right. Um, you know, Obama had backed down on on arming. He gave them trucks and some supplies, but no weapons. And Obama has armed the Ukrainian junta there. You know, they held an election, but yeah, everyone in the East who refused to recognize the coup government wasn't allowed to vote in it. Had nothing to do with it. You know, Ukraine has these terrible divisions because the East was settled by you know, settled, uh, you know, Stalin moved a bunch of Russian, ethnic Russians to Eastern Ukraine. Um, and of course, you know, the communists, uh, you know, instituted the Holodomor is what it's called when he starved about 3 million Ukrainians to death and stole all their grain in the 1930s. And, um, so then when the Nazis came rolling through in their invasion, a bunch of, anti-communists in the west of the country allied with the Nazis and not only participated in the Holocaust, um, murdering thousands of tens of thousands of Jews and Poles and Roma and whoever else, um, you know, scarlet war crimes against civilians, but they helped participate in the Nazi invasion of Russia. And then so when the Russians turned the tide and conquered Eastern Europe, uh, you know, and drove the Nazis back out again and eventually defeated them, um, you know, they all the all the people who uh, were happy to be liberated by the Nazis, at least for a short time there, found themselves re-enslaved by the Russians, all, by the communists uh, all over again. And so you have these major divisions. I mean, you think about Republicans and Democrats in this country accusing each other of being Nazis and communists all the time. Well, over there, they're really Nazis and communists and they got yeah. some hard feelings like, you know. Are only in our imaginations. And, you know, the obvious solution would be to let the the east of the country have full autonomy or even secede. Um, and it's worthy of note here as a parenthesis that when, you know, when they seize, when the Russians seized the Crimean Peninsula, they held a referendum and it was it was monitored by the Germans, by the way, um, who came in. Or I don't know if it was monitored, but they came in afterwards and verified that, you know, the numbers were legit, that better than 85 percent of the people of Crimea voted to join Russia, which, as David Stockman points out, has never belonged to Ukraine. It belonged to Turkey until Catherine the Great bought it from them in 1783. When America was still under the Articles of Confederation and we're four years out from James Madison's coup d'etat and the writing of the Constitution. Um, and so um, 
and it was only Khrushchev drunk one night and rewarding the Ukrainians for helping his rise to power after the death of Stalin that he gave them Ukraine. So we have we're pretending like baby Jesus, you know, announced in the Bible that you know Crimea must belong to Ukraine from now on but yeah no it was just Khrushchev it was an order of the premier of the Soviet Union and the fourth international of the communist party or whatever um and this is supposed to be respected beyond all measure um and and you know they say well the the rules-based liberal world order, in other words, the American Empire, says that borders may never change by violent conflict, only by negotiation and votes of the UN Security Council and so forth. I mean, you know, unless you count America's war to break Kosovo off from Russian-backed Serbia, uh, in which case, yeah. Or if if it's in, even earlier than that, the Americans coming in. And helping to instigate the uh, horrible, some would even say genocidal conflict in the Balkans when Yugoslavia broke up, Um, you know, when they had a deal and the Americans came and ruined the deal. And then after the fighting, you know, got really bad, then the Americans came in with a black magic marker and drew hard international borders where there were only soft kind of, you know, land borders, a, a river here, a road there, or whatever, that people were sort of treating as soft borders. Uh, you know, Richard Holbrook came in and drew with black magic marker and said, these are now international borders, which just meant that tens of thousands of people were stuck on the wrong side of those lines. And the massacres continued, and the, the ethnic cleansing and everything else was made worse. First of all, by American intervention over there in the first place when they ruined the deal, and then secondly, under their peace deal. And then a couple of years later, they launched another war to break Kosovo off. So, in other words, America can do whatever the hell America wants. If Israel wants to murder every last Palestinian and move into their houses, well, that's perfectly fine. They never had any borders in the first place because they refused to declare them. Um for the greater Israel. So, yeah, yeah, that's the liberal world order as enforced by America. But when the... Oh, and then I'm off on a tangent, though. Um, when when Crimea said, we want to rejoin Russia, the Russians said, okay, fine. And the Americans screamed and cried. But then after the Ukrainian junta attacked the uh, pro-Russian East... Um, and they went to war. They called it a war on terrorism and attacked them. And the Donbass region there in Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, basically between Crimea and Russia there to the northeast, uh, and they fought. They begged Putin to absorb them into Russia. And they held a referendum and said, we want to join Russia. And Putin told them no. Now, this is this guy who supposedly is hell-bent on conquering all of Eastern Europe and recreating the Soviet Union somehow. And here they're begging him to march in. And all he did was send in special ops guys with no insignia on their uniforms, basically deniable uh, Delta Force types, you know, Russian Spetsnaz, to come in and help and back the, um, you know, so-called separatists, the autonomists in the east there, but refused. And, of course, the Russians could invade. And, in fact, when the Americans were talking about bringing Ukraine into NATO a few years ago, a few years before that, Putin said, oh, I guess it was in 2008 uh, under Bush, and Putin said, you know that I could have my men in Kiev in two weeks. And he probably meant two days. 
Now, there's no question whether the Russians could conquer Ukraine if they wanted it, but they don't want it. Why would they want it? So they can fight some major insurgency, um, you know, and 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 make nothing, get nothing out of it at all. And the whole thing is a hoax, basically, to try to put all of this on Putin. But once he reacts, once he does anything, you know, once he um, started bombing al-Qaeda in Syria, they go, oh, it's Russia and war crimes, which, of course, they were killing civilians in mass, just the same as America does when America wages air war. You know, for all of the accusations of war crimes against Russia, which... You know, virtually all are true. I don't know about each and every instance, but, uh, you know, certainly they massacred civilians uh, with their um, air war against CIA backed Al Qaeda forces there. But one, who put them in that position? USA, CIA, that's who, Barack Obama. And two, look at what America did in Mosul and in Raqqa. Again, killed thousands and thousands and thousands of innocent civilians, raised these cities to the ground. Oh, uh, did I leave out Mosul? Uh, I mean, pardon me, did I leave out um, Ramadi, which they also leveled completely to the ground. And thankfully, ISIS fled from Fallujah before that got too out of hand in 2014. But America waged a devastating air war in Iraq War Three, cleaning up the mess that they'd created by really creating the Islamic State in the first place in Syria, which then blew back into Iraq. So for these men soaking in blood and backing the American people's only actual enemies in the world. Al-Qaeda guys sworn loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of Al-Qaeda, the butcher of New York City, to then turn around and go, oh, look, boo-hoo, Russia is stopping our plan to put Zawahiri on the throne in Damascus? By and and you know it's obviously it's a bunch of trumped up crap. And, and of course, in the media... They're not just liars, they're also just completely stupid. And none of them can keep any of this story straight. So none of them really know what they're talking about. You know, and I mean, Donald Trump is the same way. Donald Trump congratulated the president of Lebanon for winning the war on terror and said, yeah, you're doing a great job the way you kicked Hezbollah and ISIS out of the country. It was Hezbollah that that kicked ISIS out of Lebanon. Hezbollah that did not knock our towers down. Hezbollah, that they weren't even the ones behind the barracks bombing in 1983. That was the Amal militia. <laughs> so Hezbollah, yeah. that is no threat to the United States, has never attacked the United States. Um, and yet he doesn't know the difference, and his aides won't explain to him the difference. Maybe they don't know either. Yeah, and uh, yeah, they may not know either, but, you know, talking head hairdo lady on CNN doesn't know the first effing thing about it this whole time. And so, you know, these are supposed to be the people who inform us about what's what when, I mean, what are they even supposed to do? What if you could somehow get them to really understand that, wait, Barack Obama, I mean, after all this time even... Barack Obama and John Brennan were back in Al-Qaeda in Syria? Yeah. And what are they supposed to do with that? Well, that just couldn't be right. So they just shut it off. You know? Yeah. In fact, Dave Smith was on CNN today and said that, yeah, John Brennan wants to talk about treason. Let's talk about him arming ISIS. Because remember, the Al-Nusra front, Al-Qaeda in Syria, was just the Syrian branch of what was then ISI, the Islamic State of Iraq, which is what Al-Qaeda in Iraq started calling themselves in 2006. So, yes, they literally were arming ISIS. The only thing that happened was in 2013... In the late spring of 2013, ISIS broke off from Al-Qaeda 
and and went under Baghdadi and said, we're not going to listen to Zawahiri anymore. We're going to do what we want. So people think of ISIS as the breakoff kind of new phenomenon that came out of Al-Qaeda in Syria. But no, ISIS was the creation, really, of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi in Iraq, who, I guess as long as I'm on this point, Eric... Go for it. When... When Colin Powell gave his UN speech to justify Iraq War II, he pretended that Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was, one, a member of al-Qaeda, which was a lie. He had told Osama bin Laden, no, I don't want to join your group. I want to attack the King of Jordan, not the United States. And two, that he was tied to Saddam Hussein, who had even given him medical treatment. And I forget if he mentioned this in the speech, but the lie was that that Hussein had given him a wooden leg and treated him in the hospital, was protecting him. But Colin Powell knew that he was lying because he knew, as I know you know, that Zarqawi at that time was hiding up in American protected Iraqi autonomous Kurdistan, where Saddam Hussein had no reach at all. That that area had been under American full protection, no fly, no drive zone since 1991, when George Bush Sr. had encouraged them to rise up against Saddam and then betrayed them and stabbed them in the back and let Saddam massacre, you know, about a hundred thousand Kurds and Shia in that, uh, you know, the Great Bay of Pigs of the Desert in 1991. We've been protecting that area of Iraq ever since that time, and that's where Zarqawi was. He was not the tie to Osama or to Saddam, much less the tie between the two of them. It was just a lie. And then they said, oh, and he's making ricin, you know, which maybe that was true that he was making ricin. But you can Google this as easy as hell, everybody. You just put in NBC News, Zarqawi, Kurdistan, and up will pop up Jim Mikloszewski. And you'll find, in fact, on this particular point, for some reason, there's like 10 great articles about this. There are more great articles about this than are even justified by the story in a way. But uh, the easiest one to find is Jim Mikloszewski, NBC News, where he says the military begged George Bush over and over and over and over again. Please let us kill Zarqawi before the war starts. We know where he is. We've got his ass. Let's drop a J-dam on him. And Bush said no, because they needed the lie to justify the war. So then, once the war started, Zarqawi came down from Kurdistan and started his group and started attacks. But then it wasn't until a year and a half, in the fall of 2004, a year and a half after the invasion began, after the occupation began, only then did Zarqawi declare his loyalty to Osama bin Laden and name his group Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And this is the group that then, after he was killed in the summer of 2006, renamed themselves the Islamic State of Iraq, ISI, coincidentally with the intelligence service in Pakistan there. It's the American acronym anyway, right? The the American initials. Um, And so when, when Dave Smith was on CNN today and said John Brennan's backing ISIS in Syria, uh, yeah, that comedian is right. And, uh, and what did Essie Cup say? Huh. Because she's a CNN lady, and that's not their bag. That's not their line. Their line is, Iran is worse, Hezbollah's worse, Syria's worse. Why? Because that's what Israel wants. And that's what Barack Obama wanted uh, in order to appease Israel. As Michael Orman would say, right? Because Iran has uh, 
military nuclear capability, whatever that means, right? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, thank you for bringing that up because so Michael Oren was the ambassador to the United States. He's actually an American, um, but a dual citizen who went and he was Israel's ambassador to the U.S. And if people just put in O R E N Sunnis, Oren Sunnis. You'll see this clip jump right up. Well, you'll see an article in the Jerusalem Post from about six months before. Would have been the fall of 2013. Um, and then, but what you'll find on YouTube there, the first thing that'll come up is Michael Oren on stage at the Aspen Fancy Pants National Security Conference thing that they they're doing right now, actually. Um, uh, and it's 2014, and it's late June. So, if you remember right, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi seized Mosul and gave his big speech on the balcony declaring himself the Caliph Ibrahim, ruler of the Islamic State, in the first week of June. So, the conversation between Oren and Jeffrey Goldberg, Commissar Goldberg, the former Israeli prison guard and now editor of The Atlantic and accuser of anti-Semitism of anyone who knows better than him on anything. They have this conversation and and Oren says absolutely unapologetically, you know what, I should just play the clip, shouldn't I? <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. I got it right here, man. You know, this is insane, man. I mean, people, I think, might not believe it, but... Um, and, and I'll go ahead and keep setting it up while I'm finding the clip. Um, he, uh, oh, what, well, my iTunes ain't picking it up. Well, I'll have to Google it. Um, he, he makes it very clear that he is not talking about some mythical moderates. He's not talking about the free Syrian army. He is talking about the Islamic State. And not just, oh, ISIS, the group. He's talking about... The Islamic State, which has just declared itself a state, which has conquered at this moment all of eastern Syria and all of western Iraq and erased the old Sykes-Picot border between the two. And Goldberg, by the way, refuses to go along with this. He goes, I don't know if I'm speaking for you or not. And Goldberg's like, no way, pal. <laughs> you ain't going to get me on this one. Um, but... Uh, Oren says it's the Israeli point of view. A couple times he disclaims and pretends he's only speaking for himself, but then he keeps slipping and saying, so from the Israeli point of view, from the Israeli point of view, because he really is, that is what he's talking about, is, um, is uh, you know, he's the ambassador for Benjamin Netanyahu. And that's what he's talking about is the point of view of the prime minister of, uh, of Israel. That they prefer the Islamic State to Assad because Assad is backed by Iran. And Iran, as he outright lies, as you just put it, uh, has access to military nuclear technology, which is just not true in any sense. And, um, and because Assad, as he puts it, is responsible for every single death that has happened in the war. He he, you know, says five hundred thousand, I think, um, have died in the war, and that's all on Assad. So then he says, "Well, so just do the math." Um, 
Uh, and so both of the both of his excuses are obviously outright lies, and there wouldn't have even been a war in Syria whatsoever if America hadn't started the war there in order to appease Israel in the first place. And in fact, I'll explain that one in a second too. But here's the clip. We have to choose the lesser of evils here. The lesser evil is the Sunnis over the Shiites. It's an evil, believe me, it's terrible evil. Again, they've just taken out 1,700 former Iraqi soldiers and shot them in a field. But who are they, who are they fighting against? They're fighting against the, against the proxy with Iran that's complicit in the murder of 160,000 people in Syria. You can just you know, do the math. And again, one side is armed with suicide bombers and rockets. The other side has access to military nuclear capabilities. So from Israel's perspective, um, you know, if someone's got, if, if, if there's got to be an evil that's going to prevail, you know, let, let the, the Sunni evil prevail. There you go. And this is two weeks after the fall of Mosul. And you hear a specific reference to their massacre of 1,700 Iraqi Air Force cadets, which I don't know if you can find that anymore, but it was, um, you know, that video was available online for a long time where, you know, these guys, these prisoners are all laying you know, bound in a parking lot and um, and the Islamic State guys just machine gun them all to death in the worst massacre you've ever seen. Yeah. And 1,700 their- guys. And he goes, and then also lining them up and shooting them in the head and dropping their bodies in the river, if you've ever seen that one. And so, um, and so, uh, yeah, there you go. And he's saying, yeah, but... The Islamic State. From Israel's perspective, the Islamic State is the lesser evil than Iran, which is helping Assad defend from the Islamic State. So this, so this covers- is outright treason to the 3,000 Americans killed on September 11th and their survivors. And never mind the 4,000 out of the 4,500 guys that died fighting the Sunni-based insurgency in Iraq. Now, they never should have been there. But still, if your son or your brother was killed by one of Zarqawi's guys or by the Sunni-based insurgency in Iraq, and then you hear a bu- an, an American-Israeli dual citizen justifying this treason over ridiculous lies like Iran has military nuclear technology, which he knows is a lie, and that's the justification for this treason, and that's it. There you go. You wonder why? But why is America backing al-Qaeda in Syria? Because that's what Israel wants. And in fact, so I mentioned that a second ago. Uh, Here's the proof of that, too. All anyone has to do is Google, as president, I don't bluff. And this is an article uh, in The Atlantic. It's an interview of Obama by, again, Jeffrey Goldberg. And uh, they're talking about, I don't bluff. He's saying, I swear to you, please, Jeffrey, tell the Israelis who decide on American policy that I promise, and I really mean it, I'm not going to let Iran get nuclear weapons. I'm pursuing this deal to prevent them from getting nuclear weapons. So please chill your hyperventilating. And look, if, it, if the deal doesn't work... And they insist on pursuing their nuclear technology anyway, which they weren't making nuclear bombs anyway, and he knew that, but still. Um, And this is from March 2012, by the way, uh, just as the the war there is getting going. Um, He's saying, listen, I swear to God, I will start a war with Iran before I let them get a nuclear bomb, okay? I promise. 
That was why he did the interview, was to tell Goldberg, to tell Likud that, please let me continue with this policy. I swear to God, I'm putting Israel first here. Can't you tell? So then Goldberg says to Barack Obama in this interview, he says, can you just talk about Syria as a strategic issue? Talk about it as a humanitarian issue as well. Yeah, we got to pay lip service and pretend that Assad, not Al-Qaeda, are the actual butchers and war criminals there. Although, you know, not that Assad's a good guy or anything. He's a fascist dictator and killed plenty of civilians. But still, who put him in that position? USA, CIA. Can you talk about Syria as a strategic issue? It would seem to me that one way to weaken and further isolate Iran is to remove or help remove Iran's only Arab ally. Obama. Absolutely. Goldberg. And so the question is, what else can this administration be doing? And Obama says, well, look, there's no doubt that Iran is much weaker now than it was a year ago. The Arab Spring, as bumpy as it has been, represents a strategic defeat for Iran, because which is nonsense. Um, impulse of freedom and this and that, and the Iranians are worried. But more directly, it is now engulfing Syria. And Syria is basically their only true ally in the region. He's leaving out Iraq because it's America that put Iran's friends in power in Baghdad. So that's a little embarrassing to mention that the greatest advance in Iranian power in you know since the Persian Empire fell was due to the USA. Right? Just like Hezbollah was created in reaction to Israeli and American policy in Lebanon. And uh, whatever help the Houthis are getting uh, in Yemen from Iran is in reaction to America and Saudi's war against them. But so he goes on to tell uh, Goldberg, he says, Syria is Iran's only true ally in the region. It is our estimation that Assad's days are numbered. It's not a matter of if, but when. Now, can we accelerate that? We're working with the world community to try to do that. It's complicated by the fact that Syria is a bigger, more sophisticated, more complicated country than Libya, uh, which, of course, was easy to help al-Qaeda overthrow um, Gaddafi there, he's implying. Um, and the UN, the, the Russians are intransigent and blocking us uh, at the UN Security Council, so we can't you know, do a ruling like that. Not that the UN Security Council has the right or, or the power or the authority to tell a head of state anywhere to step down from their office. Um, but he says, you know, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, just came back from helping to lead the Friends of Syria group in Tunisia to try to come up with a series of strategies uh, oh, to help provide humanitarian relief. And then he says, but they can also accelerate a transition to a peaceful and stable and representative Syrian government. If that happens, it will be a profound loss for Iran. And then Goldberg says, is there anything you could do to move it faster? And Obama says, well, nothing that I can tell you because your classified clearance isn't good enough. Ha ha ha. I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Because what he's saying is, he's guilty of treason. He's arming Al-Qaeda in order to weaken Iran, which has never attacked the United States of America. In their version of events, they would say, yeah, they're doing it to, you know, take Iran down a peg, as Obama says. Um, 
Would they also... Oh, I like this too. There's an example of factors that when we're in in consultation with all our allies, including the Israelis, and we raise all these factors, this is what we have to do. Now, part of, you know, obviously he's pandering a bit to Goldberg there. And so he's going to focus on, you know, Goldberg's asking specifically how, you know, sort of how can we help Israel's interests about in the region and taking Iran down a peg. So that's kind of his angle, you know, but they did, you know, there's like kind of the degree of separation between directly arming Al Qaeda for part of it of they're doing. I mean, there's different iterations of it, but mostly they're trying to arm the FSA and, oh, you know, whoops, if they happen to end up with going to Golani, then, you know, that happens. Uh, do you think really their full, you know, their main agenda here really was strictly the Iran thing? Or do you think part of, or maybe it's a combination of, well, and, you know, we looked pretty bad after Egypt and now nah, Libya didn't work out too well, but, you know, Syria, Syria is the one we're going to get right. We're going to get this one right. The Democracy promotional finally not be a disaster. No, somewhere. I don't think so, because here's why. And he just said why. Syria is a hell of a lot more complicated mess than Libya. Man, in Libya, you have an army of Al-Qaeda guys marching from east to west. You got NATO air cover, and there's basically nothing standing in their way. It's a much smaller country in terms of populations, maybe bigger in terms of landmass, but most of that is worthless desert out there. All the population, virtually all the population is near the coast or way down south. And so, um, as he says, in Syria, it's much more complicated. In Syria, you had a, you still have, a uh, secular Baathist dictatorship ruling over uh, something like a 70% Sunni majority um, and backed by... First of all, at least a plurality of Sunnis. So it's not like a simple sectarian war the way they would try to say. I mean, most of the Syrian army is Sunni to this day, including many of the generals in charge of it. Um, but then also you have the Shiites, the Alawites, which is sort of kind of a, a break off of the Shia in a way. Um, the Druze and all the different sects of Christians, the Marianites and the Chaldeans and the Assyrian Christians there, and they all support the state to, you know, if only to protect them from the head choppers. It's not like they lived in a free society before, but when it came to this war, and there was no question, they all rallied around the state. The only people who, uh, you know, joined the insurgency at all um, were Sunnis, and not all of them were jihadists from the very beginning. There were also, I guess, socialists and others who thought, but learned very quickly that there was no way that they were going to come out on top here, man. The Al-Qaeda guys started coming across the border from Iraq immediately, and the Americans knew that too. You know, in one of those things where it's, you know, left hand and right hand, you had the, the State Department basically ratting on the CIA to McClatchy newspapers, saying that, look... The al-Nusra front is just al-Qaeda in Iraq. They're coming over the border, and they're taking charge of this thing. And we knew all through 2011. You know, there was a a report in The Observer in, I think, June or July 2011 that the Saudis are sending jihadists to Syria. I mean, that's it. Right there. Case closed. Done deal. Are you kidding me? Stop this right now. America has—sorry, the American people— have one national security interest in the Middle East whatsoever. And I'm not saying that they should be actively doing this because that can only backfire. But their their interest is 
preventing the rise of any new bin Ladenite type Sunni insurgencies like the one that George Bush created in Iraq when he took Al Qaeda from 400 men to 4,000. And that's what Barack Obama should have done immediately was done a conference call with Israel, Turkey, Saudi, Qatar, Kuwait, UAE, and said, no, we're the superpower and we say we hate Al-Qaeda in Iraq more than you hate Assad. That's it. Your op is canceled. This is not happening. And instead, what did he do? He committed treason. He said, let's do this. And they did it. You can hear him bragging. I'd tell you what we're doing, Goldberg, but then I'd have to kill you. And, yeah. and we know from that uh, late that summer, Eric Margulies came back from France and said, man, I'm talking with Mike and he has all these guys in the military and intelligence and, and diplomats and all these people in France that he runs around with. And he goes, France is on the ground helping organize this insurgency right now. They want Syria back. The French used to own it after World War One when they stole it from the Ottomans and from the Syrian people. Um, and they want their power and influence back. And they are there right now. And Phil Giraldi wrote a piece for Antiwar.com. Uh, would have been December the 11th, 2011, saying uh, it was called Washington's Secret Wars. And there was another one that was NATO versus Syria that he wrote for the American Conservative magazine. I think it was the Antiwar.com one that said that there is a new finding that is an order by the president to the CIA that they are to step up covert action in Iran and Syria. And so we knew from at least, I mean, really, we knew from the very beginning, um, but uh, from uh, we knew absolutely that Obama had authorized the CIA to support the rebellion in, in Syria uh, by the end of 2011. We now have the emails... Uh, to Hillary Clinton, where her aide, Jamie Rubin, says, hey, look, boss, AQ is on our side in this one. And that's from February 2012. And we know that that famous clip that um, uh, I I guess I used to play in my old old intro. I'm not sure if that's the same one I still use or not. There's one that had the bad brains that YouTube was taking all my money. So I use the poison idea one now. But anyway, there's the 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 um, Hillary Clinton quote on CBS, where the CBS guy is kind of you know busting her chops and saying, "How come we're not doing more to confront Assad?" And so she wanted to do more treason. Her and Petraeus and Panetta, they were the ones who were behind all this conspiracy in the first place, pushing it. But here in this in this interview, she's being put in the position of defending Obama's policy, which is only let's do a half-ass job of backing Al Qaeda instead of, you know, a full bombing run over Damascus or whatever. And so she says, well, gee, Wyatt, to the CBS guy, we know Zawahiri is supporting the revolution in Syria. Are we supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria? And so, you know, it's really complicated. And we're looking around, we're looking for people to back who could take over and could form a legitimate and stable government there. And you know what? We don't see that. In fact, I'm going to play that clip too, dude. Okay. Do you want to find it now or do you want yeah, to? Yeah, yeah. Let me, let, okay. me, uh, let me cue that up here real quick. I got it. Yeah. So the first one is, uh, so here's Hillary Clinton just three days after that email. Splice this in there in the right the- place here. All right, here we go. We know Al-Qaeda, Zawahiri, is supporting the opposition in Syria. Are we supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria? Hamas is now supporting the opposition. Are we supporting Hamas in Syria? 
So I think, Wyatt, you know, despite the great pleas that we hear from those people who are being ruthlessly assaulted by Assad, if you're a military planner or if you're a secretary of state and you're trying to figure out do you have the elements of an opposition that is actually viable, we don't see that. So there's the answer to your question. They knew there was no viable opposition to take over. And so, as one uh, Israeli advisor explained to the New York Times, the policy is, if not overthrow Assad, we want to continue the war and see both sides hemorrhaged to death. And by both sides, they mean 500,000 innocent civilians. And then plus whatever all soldiers and Al-Qaeda guys, too. Yeah, I think that 500, that might include soldiers in it, too. But, yeah, the point is hundreds of thousands of people. And and, and seriously, I mean, and the refugee crisis and everything. You know, the little yeah. boy, the dead corpse washed up on the beach. Remember that? That little boy mm -hmm. was fleeing Al-Qaeda, not Assad. He was fleeing America's CIA-backed Al-Qaeda jihadists. And so you think within, you know, U.S. policy circles at that time, you got Hillary versus Obama. Hillary wants to do more. Uh, essentially, the distinction was whether you have the, the hemorrhage policy of stalemate that's bloody and, you know, tons of people dying, but no decisive outcome. Kind of like Yemen now, incidentally. Um, or, or actual overthrow and see where the chips land. And Hillary was kind of leaning more to that latter option. Is that kind of... Yeah, I think down. so, and especially in the first year. And then, you know, as soon as she was gone, remember, she only served out the first term. And, and so as soon as she resigned at the beginning of 2013, the first thing she did was put a report in the New York Times saying, well, I wanted to do more. Me and Panetta and Petraeus, we had this whole conspiracy to back Al-Qaeda to overthrow Assad, but Obama wouldn't do it. <laughs> uh Good times. All right. Well, uh, maybe we'll we'll jump back to Russia now. So obviously this is a big uh, piece of the Russia story, which is part of the deterioration of U.S.-Russian relations. I mean, it's been kind of a steady, steady downward uh, descent there. Part of it was U.S. policy in Syria. Another piece was uh, the Ukrainian coup and then the Crimea situation that we talked about a little bit. You know, you mentioned that on you know, I'm not sure if it was the eve or the day after of the Crimean um, annexation there that everybody who's, you know, it all connected to the military industrial complex is, you know, excited about, you know, planning ways that they're going to spend all their new money. What do you think accounts? So it makes sense, you know, if you're just cynical and, you know, you don't have any morality, of course, it's a job and you're going to make money off of it. And so I guess that's how they think. And, you know, I can, that's understandable. How do you think, how do you account for kind of the you know, the very one-sided tilt in, you know, and that, that actually accounts for, you know, congressional people, their promotion of the new Cold War. It makes sense. These are their lobbyists, et cetera. But when it gets to the media and, you know, these personalities, the guy asking the question of the, you know, in the summit where it's clearly baked in, his full premise is, what do you think happened? And by the way, when are you going to denounce what we all know happened? Uh, mm -hmm. What do you think accounts for their bias on this? I mean, do you think they're true believers or I mean, they don't have a direct financial interest the same way. So what are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, most of it is just because they're damn Democrats. And, 
you know, it's pretty easy to hate and fear Trump. And especially if you're already a Democrat. Um, And you know what? And this is true for everyone with power. And it's certainly true for these media people that they just live in this little bubble. No one ever tells them they're wrong. And, And if anybody ever does tell them they're wrong, it's somebody who's, you know, not very easy to listen to or put stock in. Uh, right. So some, you know, Trump train guy going, yeah. no, uh, Russia never did nothing to nobody or whatever. Doesn't get very far. Right. Because right. those those people would be hawks if it was the other way around for a minute. Right. If Trump was a Russia hawk, they would be, too. So um, they don't you know, the, the pro Trump side doesn't have much of a case as far as that goes. And honestly, man, I think this is the case for 99 percent of everyone you ever see on TV. You know, the CNN hosts, they don't even read CNN.com. They just watch CNN. The same people who host it. They don't know anything. You know, if you watch any of these hairdos, male or female, I'm not trying to be sexist about it. You will not get it that like, oh, you know what? He must have read that same article that I read yesterday because I hear him (laughs) saying that thing. That will never happen to you ever. Because they didn't read that article. They didn't. All they know is what they saw. And it's the same thing even with Jon Stewart back at, in the, in his, at, when he was in, at his best against George W. Bush. And, and sometimes that show was just brilliant and, and in so many ways. And yet you could tell. The whole frame of the show was what was on TV today. Let's make fun of what was on TV today. And then the contradiction to what they claim was almost never that, yeah, but the New York Times admitted six weeks ago that that's not true. This is what's true. That was never the frame, right? And all you have to do is show some words and highlight them yellow or whatever. But that was never it. If they're going to show a contradiction, the contradiction is somebody else saying something else on TV. That's all they know. That's how people get the news. They watch TV. And so... Now, I remember thinking it was a miracle that um, for a time there, it seemed as though per- perhaps Chris Matthews was reading antiwar.com during the Bush years for just a minute there. It was like, wow, that's interesting. He brought up a couple of articles that you might not have found anywhere else if you hadn't have been looking at antiwar.com. But even then, it was, you know, we're just speculating. And even then, it was like, you know, this scumbag Chris Matthews, this horrible person that. At least he can read. He really stands out because he sometimes reads things as compared to everyone else in the TV news business. You know, they are just, and we saw all this, if you're old enough to remember how it was in 2002 and 2003, this is the exact same kind of, you know, consensus. We all believe this. And if you don't, then screw you. If you don't, how dare you? The CIA says Saddam's trying to kill us, and you think you know better than the CIA? You think... I remember a lady in my cab, and and it was just perfect. You know, we had this fun little conversation. And, of course, part of being in my cab is, you're stuck in my cab. You can't get away from me. So... And she's saying to me, well, I'm sure that George Bush has secret information that he can't tell us. This comes after I say, yeah, but they already, this is already all disproven. The nuke thing is already disproven. The aluminum tubes, those were for rockets. They were being sold by the Italians, our NATO allies. The Italians weren't selling nuclear nuclear centrifuge technology to Iraq for a Manhattan project that nobody can find anywhere. Give me a break, dude. This isn't true. 
Well, George Bush must have secret information that he can't tell us. And I remember saying to her, you know what? I might take that a little bit more seriously, lady, if I didn't know for a fact that you're just repeating word for word what you saw someone else say on TV. Like a parroting puppet little minor bird. Those aren't your words. Those aren't your thoughts. You saw on TV somebody, one in a million shot, say, but where's the proof? We hear nothing but claims about Saddam Hussein's Iraq, but where's the proof? And then the answer is, well, Bush must know things that we can't know. What, do you want him to burn all his sources and methods? And, of course, we know now that Naji Sabri and uh, what's his name, the other guy, that CIA had very, very high-level spies inside Saddam's regime who told them, we swear to God, there's nothing, not a canister of mustard gas, nothing. They knew that that was the secret information they couldn't tell us, was that CIA reviewed the evidence and reported to George Bush that Iraq was not tied to Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden. I interviewed the chief of the CIA bin Laden unit myself, who told me himself. He did the review. In fact, you might know Michael Shoyer, his first book, Through Our Enemy's Eyes, claimed that Saddam was tied to Al-Qaeda. And the Weekly Standard guys tried to call him out for that. And you know what he said? I was wrong before. But that was way back in the 90s. After 9-11, George Bush said, go back and review it. And I proved myself wrong. I was wrong. That wasn't true. And I told George Tenet, and I think the way he put it was, I don't know if George Tenet told George Bush or not. But George Tenet, the head of the CIA, knew. They knew. That was the secret information they couldn't tell us. They were lying their asses off, and they knew they were lying. But this was the exact same atmosphere. You couldn't get a word in edgewise on TV to say otherwise. And the only people who were allowed to contradict the story about Iraq on TV was BJ Honeycutt from MASH. And, and you know, Phil Donahue would have, I don't know, I guess he had Jesse Ventura on there one time debunk it. Um, and then they threw Donahue off of MSNBC because um, he wasn't buying it. So MSNBC canceled the show. You know, people think, oh, that's the Democrats, oh, the liberals, whatever. They were the worst. They were as bad. They were doing everything they could to catch up with Fox News. And no offense to BJ Honeycutt. I mean, the guy that played him, he was doing his best, but he didn't really, you know, he was sort of playing the role that Alan Combs played to Sean Hannity, where his job is to sit up there and fail. He, he is the straw man. What the hell does the actor who played BJ Honeycutt on MASH know about anything? He doesn't know anything. How could he possibly? And so then you're supposed to come to exactly that conclusion. Well, gee, apparently the only person who doesn't believe in the war is the actor that played B.J. Honeycutt who's never been in a fight in his life. So what the hell does he know? Obviously, George Bush knows what he's doing or he wouldn't be doing it. And it's the same thing here. Why would the CIA lie? Well, I got a thousand reasons why they might, starting with the money and the power and all of their different agendas. You know, give me a break. So, Scott, am I, am I to understand that you, you don't trust the conclusions of every intelligence agency? Is that, is that what you're saying? That can't be what you're saying, Scott. Well, and that's the other joke, right? Is it's a few hand-picked guys that they admitted that Clapper went and took uh, you know, one or two guys from FBI, one or two guys from CIA, and one or two guys from whatever, and had them come to these conclusions. And, you know, this just came out 
last week or two weeks ago that Jack Matlock, who was the second to last ambassador to the Soviet Union, who I've interviewed on the show about this stuff, um, well, not about the Russia gate, but about Russia overall, he said he has a high-level source inside the State Department who told him that they were frozen out. That the State Department, by the way, the INR, the in, or, uh, uh, yeah, the Institute for Intelligence and Research, which is the State Department's own little in-house CIA intelligence agency, they were the dissenters in 2002 who tried to stop the war, who said that the aluminum tubes were for rockets, not centrifuges, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and debunked all that and were ignored. And they were not allowed to participate in this at all, and they disagreed with the conclusions about the Russians here. And guess who else was frozen out? The Defense Intelligence Agency, who are in a much better position to know about what's going on with the Russian GRU than any other agency. And they were not allowed to even comment or participate in this thing at all. And then, so, now, maybe I'm a hypocrite because I'll cite the CIA for you when they say the Iranians never did have a nuclear weapons program. They only did nuclear weapons research, which even that isn't true, as uh, shown by the heroic Gareth Porter in his book, Manufactured Crisis. But... Uh, I will cite the National Intelligence Council in 2007 and ever since then saying that the Iranians never made the decision to pursue a nuclear bomb program. But you see what's going on there is that they're arguing, as the lawyers say, against interest. They're admitting that, well, actually, no, we don't really have anything there. And in fact, I guess you could argue that they were really trying to stop Bush from attacking Iran. Um, but they weren't lying to do it. They were telling the truth. That, and, and we know that because it's verified by every other thing. So, you know, you have to be careful, um, you know, with this kind of deal. Uh, I don't want to be just, you know, confirmation bias here, but I'm not. We're talking about the CIA in 2007 when they put out that NIE. They told us what we already knew. They told right. us what Gordon Prather had been saying at Antiwar.com for years. Uh, what the IAEA had been saying for years, that the Iranians' nuclear program is safeguarded and inspected and locked down, and they're not making nukes. We already well, knew also that. Kind of so when the with. CIA said it was true, it was more like, see, we told you what, they're, what the so-called enemy is not up to. So that's quite a different case than this kind of thing. Well, And, in, in and that they case put too, their names also, on it, too. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a common sense thing there of just, you know, how long can the Iranians be, you know, X years away from nukes and never create them? Like, do they just right? Like, how could that possibly either? They're all idiots, in which case, why are you worried about it? And they don't know how to develop anything. OK, well, that's not really a good Casas belly or they weren't doing it all along. And that's, you know, if the CIA comes out and acknowledges that, that's that's what it is. So to get back to the to the Russia thing, I, I think uh, so your position is definitely that you know, this whole thing is a hoax. And I personally, I, you know, I, I lean towards that. I'm open because, you know, you can't prove a negative. So I'm open to the possibility that it, it could exist. You know, obviously we haven't seen anything. Um, I guess one question on that, you know, everybody says, well, about the proof, we, now we got these indictments, Scott. And, and of course the, the indictments are, they're about a bunch of different things, but whenever anybody says the, Russians meddled in the election. They're not, when they're talking about the intelligence agencies, they're not talking about the steel dossier thing. They're talking about that they hacked the DNC. Um, 
And so now the indictment, the latest indictments, they go to that point, too. And so people say, look, you know, Mueller did all this work, Scott. He came out with this indictment and now you're pouring cold water on it again. But they've been doing it for a year and a half. So, I mean, surely that's enough. Well, this is the whole thing. If you go through, in fact, there's a great piece on antiwar.com for another 25 minutes here. It'll be in the archives there by Ray McGovern um, and at consortiumnews.com. Uh, and there's plenty of articles like this where they go through. Look what uh, who's been indicted for what? Nobody's been indicted for colluding with the Russians as far as... Um, you know, Mike Flynn and and um, and Manafort and all this. None of these charges have anything whatsoever to do with accusations of Russians intervening in the American election, hacking the DCC, the DNC or Podesta's email or any other thing like that it have nothing to do with it whatsoever. So people want to. You know, it's like they go, oh, look at this giant stack of paperwork, this giant stack of all the investigation we did of the Oklahoma bombing. Uh, Yeah, but it's all red herrings and nonsense. You're confusing quantity with quality. You know, look at all these indictments. Uh, Yeah, actually look at them. They don't say a goddamn thing about Russian intervention in the American election at all. Not one of them until this most recent thing where they simply make a bunch of claims about the GRU and they prove absolutely none of it. They just say that they know it's a fact that these GRU officers did these hacks and did them this way and gave them to WikiLeaks. But they don't even pretend to prove it. And so it's funny, too. I'm not saying I know it's not true, but I think that there's a much more compelling narrative that the FBI and the CIA and, you know, with the the help of the DNI decided on this conspiracy to trump up these charges against Trump. Sorry for the stupid pun in the summer of 2016 to try to prevent him from winning the election. And then it, it didn't work. They just doubled and tripled down on it. Um, you know, there's Lisa Page, who was the FBI girlfriend of John Strzok, um, who were, they were yeah. texting back and forth. Uh, she revealed in, I guess it was a closed session, but they leaked it, that she revealed that John, or and, no, and it's in the text messages, yeah. that, um, that Strzok had said to her that in looking for, at the collusion here, that there's no there there. These were the ones making the accusations. And this was also the same guy who said that he didn't think Mike Flynn lied when they interviewed mm-hmm. him. He didn't think he was lying. So whatever, you know, they they, you know, convinced him to plead guilty to lying, but probably only to protect his son from or or something else and and again, not for colluding with Russia, but for other things. Um and so and then when it comes to the um the actual GRU hack of the DNC, they don't prove that at all. They just claim it. And well, so and I think it's interesting we would too, be like, damn fools to believe them just because they have a story. Yeah. Well, and, and I think it's interesting, too, the, the counterfactual, that it's sort of the unstated premise in saying with certainty that, yes, Russia hacked the DNC and that's how they got the emails and whatnot, is that it's sort of also saying that it's impossible to believe there was anyone with integrity in the DNC that had access to these servers right. that might want to have leaked the information because they were a Bernie fan. Right. Yeah, it's like, and I mean, how likely that is it that. that the Russians were crawling all around in those servers, but they still weren't the ones who leaked it to WikiLeaks? I mean, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. You know, there was a, another report that came out that said that, and, and nobody followed up on this, that 
there was an, and it was John Strzok who said it, the FBI agent who said that there was an or a foreign government was had hacked Hillary's email uh, server and was getting a copy of every email. And they won't identify what country this is, but it wasn't Russia. It was somebody else. It was either the Israelis or the Chinese or who knows who. I mean, the NSA gives their entire haul over to the Israelis every single day anyway, so I don't know why they would need to, but hey. Um, uh, That's in the Snowden documents. It was not reported by the New York Times or the Washington Post ever, but it was in the Guardian. Um, But anyway, so... um, you know, uh, yeah, it would make perfect sense to me if the Russians were in the server, but that doesn't, first of all, it's not proven, and second of all, it's not, doesn't mean that they are Guccifer, and it doesn't mean that, you know, we should necessarily believe the accusation that Guccifer is even the person who gave this stuff to Wiki, or the group of people, or whoever Guccifer is, uh, who gave this stuff to Assange. In fact, right. you know, there, McGovern makes the case that look, Assange said, hey, I got some Hillary emails, I'm going to start leaking them, like a couple days early, and Mm -hmm. that then it sure looks like the Atlantic Council just jumped on it and started spinning all their Russia stuff and had, you know, somebody pretend to be this Guccifer guy and start putting out emails that were all adulterated with, um, you know, Cyrillic letters and this and that, like uh, an obvious setup. To make it look like, oh, he's just sloppy and leaves all this, you know, Russian information there. Um, when, you know, in fact, it looked more like a cover job to say that this must be where the leak came from. Right. Well, OK, so I got another uh, source of confirmation bias here that we could uh, confirm that the Russians were responsible. Uh, so in this back in this press conference, uh, Putin at one point gets asked, you know, did you want Trump to win? And he just flat out says, yes, of course I did, because, you know, anyone who supports warmer ties or, you know, less less Cold War, more more diplomacy, uh, I'm always for that guy. Uh, yep. And so this is another Just like thing. he said, he preferred Barack Obama to Mitt Romney and to John McCain, too. That's before the start of history. And you know so what? That's that why I preferred Barack Obama to Mitt Romney and John McCain. Yeah, that's before the start of history. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and that ought to show how nonpartisan me and Putin both are that, you know, whoever's worse on Russia is the worst full stop. That's it. I don't know why people want to pretend like there's anything in the world more important than America's relationship with Russia. That's it. It's the only thing that matters. Your own life, your baby, not yours, whoever's nothing is you know there's there's America's relationship with Russia and then the, the second most important thing is in a hundredth place behind that. That's it. Right. If America and Russia have a war, we all die. There's seven and a half billion people on this planet. At least five of us will be dead by the end of the aftermath of the nuclear war with America and Russia. And people think that just because it hadn't happened, it couldn't happen, but it could. And there have been some insanely close calls unbelievably close calls and it's really easy to see how even one tank division gets met with one tactical nuke and that's it the strategic nukes go off and we lose cities all across north america and northern eurasia and then that's it for 
for crops all over the planet for decades, you know, or yeah. whatever, a decade anyway. Um, nuclear winter is no BS, man. You know, because what happens, I'll go ahead and explain. You have a firestorm like Dresden, but you have that over all of these cities and all the forest fires and everything else raging out of control uh, all at the same time like this. All that smoke and soot will go up into the stratosphere far above the clouds where it cannot be rained out of the sky. And it will stay up there. And it's enough to block out the sun and make it snow at the goddamn equator. It's enough yeah. to, you know, there, the only reason there's seven and a half billion people on this planet is because of a very fine division of labor that is made possible by global capitalism and by, you know, wide and varied, uh, you know, farming communities all over this planet who are able to grow these crops and sell them. That yeah. shuts down. You're dead. That's it. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll try to end on a little more optimistic note. Um, one of the things that came out after the the press conference was that you know Trump's approval ratings, which are not obviously whether it's good or bad, it's not uh, indicative of anything positive by itself. None of us are Trump partisans here, but um, after the the Russia uproar, uh, his approval ratings pretty much didn't change at all. Some they went up, but it was within the margin of error. So basically flat after the entire, uh, you know, essentially the entire media and uh, Congress can, accuses him of being a traitor. Mm -hmm. So what do you what do you think about that? Do you think it's just that his base is so attached to him or everybody's already made their conclusion on this? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a couple of both. Um, you know, I think most rank and file Republicans, they support the president. They don't give a damn what Max Boot says. They don't give a damn what these neocon, uh, you know, used to be Democrats have to say about this kind of thing. And the ones who are so upset that Trump would denigrate the FBI, they've already left. They're already never Trumpers and they already have been. So, you know, I don't think that's changing. And and frankly, the accusations of treason are so ridiculous. I mean, to say that Trump denying that the Russians fixed the election for him is equivalent to Pearl Harbor, is equivalent to September 11th, is equivalent to Kristallnacht, as they said on CNN. Um, yeah. Eh, I mean, are you impressed by that? Yeah, me neither. Yeah, and it's pretty crazy. You'd think, like, you know, if you had Giuliani, well, I guess you do have Giuliani running around, but it's too bad he didn't, you know, try to capitalize on like oh you just said you you're trying to minimize september 11th i'd like to hear you take that back you know of course yeah hopefully it wouldn't uh yeah hey let's talk a little bit about uh you know himmler let's talk yeah. about the the gestapo you yeah. know just and, really and rounding to, up and, and to, uh, murdering innocent jews just for being jews in germany Ten thousand of them went off to the concentration camps every business uh you know that was it's why it's called the the night of broken glass that's what crystal knock means the broken glass when they went and smashed the businesses of every jew uh in berlin and had this massive pogrom just beginning to foreshadow the upcoming holocaust in nazi germany and the anti-defamation league is sitting still for this you're yeah. going to compare 
this nonsense. And by the way, we kind of skipped this, and everybody always skips this. But we had a right to see all of those emails. And they had no right to keep them from us. And those emails showed Hillary Clinton to be a devil. Why didn't they show her to be the best Secretary of State we ever had? Why didn't they show her to be the kind of leader we really need? Instead, they show that she very willingly cheated in the debate and happily received questions in advance from Donna Brazil at CNN. And then got up there and pretended like she didn't have a rehearsed answer to the question that she'd been fed days in advance. The, the DNC emails that showed that they rigged the election against Bernie Sanders in numerous ways. And, and you know, convinced all these, you know, lefter-leaning progressive and, and, and further left social democrat types to just stay home and not turn out to vote, even to stop Donald Trump. That no way, lady, are you going to get away with that on me? And of course, this is my favorite out of them, is the Pied Piper strategy from the Panetta, uh, pardon me, the um, Podesta emails, where they say our Pied Piper strategy is to have our friends in the media, uh, ahem, CNN, do everything they can to promote Donald Trump, Ben Carson, and Ted Cruz. In the primaries, because we want to go up against a winger who will be the easiest to beat. And Donald Trump, of course, is the biggest clown of them all. And Hillary will be able to stomp him into the ground. She was scared of a fair fight with Marco Rubio. She was scared she couldn't beat Jeb. Low energy, impotent, can't even please his wife, Bush, who got stomped right out of the race by Donald Trump with one nickname in in two weeks or something. Um, I mean, he he stayed around longer than that, but there was he had lost yeah. his chance of being the front runner from almost the very beginning, and she was so scared of Jeb Bush that her campaign asked CNN and the rest of them to promote Donald Trump. And remember the the liberals who were upset that CNN was giving him so much free airtime, they would even show his empty podium in the little square on the screen for. Like 40 minutes, sometimes I think as much as almost an hour, just waiting for him to show up while they never would show a Bernie speech live ever, not once. And they did that because they're corrupt, because they were rigging the election for Hillary Clinton. And she got exactly what she wanted, exactly what her campaign wanted, which was for Donald Trump to win. Because she thought she could beat him, and she was wrong. In fact, she couldn't beat anybody. She couldn't have even beaten Marco Rubio, I don't think. She might have been able to beat Ted Cruz, because he is just so ugly and and has her exact same lack of charisma. So you might have flipped the coin on that one. And yeah. Donald Trump, by the way, he did a really lousy job the last few months of that. You know, he went around and gave his his talks or whatever, but... Um, there were so many open avenues of attack against Hillary Clinton that he never used, that he didn't have mm-hmm. the, the wisdom. You know, he called her trigger-happy Hillary, but then he dropped that. But, man, yeah. he should have hammered that home. There are so many of uh, examples of that. Did you know, Eric, that after the Lewinsky scandal in uh, 1998 and then the, it lasted into the beginning of 1999 with the Senate trial, 
that Hillary made up with Bill only after he would agree to bomb Serbia over Kosovo. And she admitted this. She bragged about this to Gail Sheehy, her biographer, that I urged him to bomb. And this was their first phone call. She was out, you know, touring Africa and stuff like this, keeping her distance from Bill. And she called him up and said, you better bomb Serbia if you ever want to sleep in a warm bed again. And he said, "Okay, dear. Yeah, it's uh, I guess whatever gets you going, but (laughs) yeah, man. So, Uh, um, yeah. Um, It's interesting, too, that like I think the only saving grace of of that whole thing is that that was obviously the worst person she could have gone up against. It was the only only candidate the Republicans had in an anti-establishment year that didn't sound, you know, like some other version of John McCain. Right. And and, and so it's it's amazing that, you know, again, disclaimer, I apologize. Obviously, Scott and I are not fans of Trump. But how could you not understand politically? That that right. was the only person that you could lose. I mean, oh, man, I don't know. see I now I got to pick on Rand Paul too. <laughs> How could Rand Paul not understand that? Rand Paul's the son of Ron Paul. That's why he won the election for senator of Kentucky. He was the Tea Party candidate. And then what did he do? From the moment he got into power, he started running as Jeb. He started running straight to, for Mitch McConnell's embrace. To say, how can I be a good, little, kept, centrist, little pet Republican? And then he went into that race. The first thing he did was go and get down on his knees and kiss Sheldon Adelson's ring and promise to try to break off an independent Kurdistan, because that's what Israel wants, and say that America should guarantee the borders of a new independent Kurdistan, which, by the way, would have caused America to go to war with our NATO ally, Turkey, Iran, our newly installed Shiite government in Iraq, as well as Bashar al-Assad. Because that's how he thought he was going to get Sheldon Adelson to give him some money that he could spend tricking you and me into supporting a scumbag like that. And then he went out in the debate, and he went, Oh, how dare Donald Trump refuse to pledge loyalty to Jeb Bush? And that at the end of this thing, when when the ruse is over and Jeb Bush is the nominee, we all promise to support him, but Donald Trump won't. What a bad guy. Instead of saying, I'm the real outsider... I mean, sure, he's Donald Trump, and he's never been a senator or a governor and all that, but he's a billionaire from New York, and he's a Democrat, and we all know it. He's a friend of Hillary Clinton. We've all seen the pictures of them hanging out together. I might be a senator, but I'm the son of a Paul, and I am really going to prove how anti-establishment I am. I'm going to abandon Israel with glee. They can fight their own damn wars and let their own damn sons die, killing the Shia if the Shia are really the greater enemy over their lies. You know, I promise I'm going to banish Sheldon Adelson from the North American continent. I promise I am going to abolish the central bank and end the terrible boom-bust cycle that does so much to destroy the lives and the livelihoods of the American people. And instead, he went, I'm Jeb Bush, too. Please love me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's depressing because he could have just said, yeah, how can you be more anti-establishment than someone who's the uh, the son of someone who 
the Republican Party changed its own rules to sabotage. Exactly. That's, that's and you a, know what? He probably uh, would have lost yeah. to Donald Trump anyway. Donald Trump is Michael Jackson level famous, right? Donald right. Trump is a superstar for whatever that's worth. And, you know, I remember when I first read that The Apprentice, his TV show, The Apprentice, was on for 14 seasons. And you can't beat that with a stick. Hillary Clinton is the most yeah. famous woman in the world, but she ain't nothing compared to Donald Trump's level of fame. And he's, you know, he's infamous too, right? And, you know, I've always, you love to hate him. I always have, has, have disliked the guy since I ever first heard of him back in the 1980s when he was the symbol of all Reaganite excess and all that, you know? But the, the, the depth to which every single American feels like they know him, they know everything about him, that's a, an incredible you know, an incredibly deep level of fame that Rand Paul could not have overcome. But he could have been the last man standing instead of Ted Cruz. I mean, Ted Cruz? Yeah. Well, anyway. and, and yeah, like you said, that everybody knew him. And that doesn't mean everybody liked him. Obviously, a lot of people didn't, right. like you said. But then there's, I always go back to that Michael Moore quote, which was, you know, very perceptive of, you know, voting for Trump is, it's like, a human Molotov cocktail, and it's going to feel good just to say F you to the establishment, even right. if you don't even like him. And you know what? And I thought, too, that, immediately of yeah. some guys that I used to be on a survey crew with, and there are three or four really good guys, man, really nice guys. And their whole thing was every day after work, they would go home and drink beer and watch wrestling. And, man, did they love wrestling, and that's how they said it, wrestling. And, <laughs> and that was just their whole thing. And as soon as I heard Donald Trump, was winning, or maybe not as soon as I heard he was, he was running. But at some point, pretty early on in the thing, I thought of those guys, and I just knew all of them are registering to vote, and all of them are going to turn out and vote. And these are guys who had no interest in politics whatsoever, no interest in policy or this or that or the other thing, who could never have been bothered to vote, probably had never voted in their lives, and yet it was so obvious that they are going to show up, dude, and you're not going to be able to stop them from showing up with a flamethrower. They're voting Trump, and every one of their contemporaries is too, all of them. And that's huge. I mean, that's exactly, you know, that was one thing that Ron Paul could have done a lot better was really go after the non-voters of America that like, listen, I know why you people don't vote. It's because all of these men are your enemy and you hate them and you have nothing to vote for. But that was before I showed up, you know, that kind of thing. And and that to me was pretty obvious. That was Trump's huge advantage was he was going to be able to turn out previous non-voters by the barrel full. And it worked. And he did do that. Yeah. All right. Well, you'll have heard me try to end this on a positive note, but uh, Scott's relentless in turning us back to the negative town, and that's that's all right. But Sorry, uh, we'll probably wrap it up there. Um, yeah. Everybody, please go and you know check out reddit.com slash r slash Scott Horton Show for Scott's new private subreddit. Email Scott to get access if you're a supporter. Scott, do you have anything else you want to say to wrap up? Uh, yeah, just my email is scott at scotthorton.org. And again... Um, patreon.com slash scott horton show and um just scotthorton.org slash donate if you want to go by way of paypal and um and we'll sign you up for that reddit group and then we'll do the q a show we'll get our questions from the reddit group so hopefully that'll be a little bit of extra incentive for you guys to sign up help support the show oh and again uh check out uh kesslin's run 
Oh, wait, I have it here. Let me say it correctly. Kesslin Runs. Kesslin Runs. Yeah, I put my S in the wrong place. Kesslin Runs, a novel by Charles H. Featherstone. It's available on Amazon.com right now. And you know what? I should say the rest of them, too. Roberts and Roberts Brokerage Inc. When you want to buy precious metals, you guys need to buy precious metals. If you have any savings at all, at least 10 or 20% of it has to be in metals. You go to Roberts and Roberts Brokerage Inc. RRBI.co. RRBI.co. Read The War State by Mike Swanson. It's a great history of the rise of the military industrial complex under Truman, Ike, and Kennedy. Uh, the war state and then uh, also follow his investment advice at wallstreetwindow.com which is great and uh, the bumpersticker.com for uh, stickers for your band or your business or whatever you got they do great work used to be my company but I sold it to Rick uh, back 15 years ago he's kept it running strong this whole time great business the bumpersticker.com and libertystickers.com it's a crappy website but there's some great anti-government propaganda for you there too and uh help me eric who am i forgetting uh i think that oh uh no oh, expanddesigns.com expanddesigns.com uh, expand uh they uh, uh harley Abbott there built my website at scotthorton.org. He's done a great job. He's a brilliant genius and does what he says when he's when he says he's going to do it, etc. Like that. Expanddesigns.com and you will save five hundred dollars if you go to expanddesigns.com slash Scott. You got the uh, no dev no ops? Oh yeah. Um Hussein Badakchani is a libertarian from England. Who wrote this great book, No Dev, and I read it, it's really good. Um, no Dev, and these are all one word each, the way that it's spelled out. No Dev, No Ops, No IT. No Dev, No Ops, No IT. It's how to run your tech business like a libertarian. It's full of great insights. It's really cool. I think I want to read it again, actually. It's really good. Hussein Badakhani. So those are the three books. Then, no dev, no ops, no IT. The War State, and um, and the new one, Kesslin Runs, Runs by Charles Featherstone. Great. All right, Scott. We'll do it again soon. All right, man. Well, thanks again, dude. This has been fun. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's yeah. I think especially. I already saw one of the comments in the in the Reddit group. Like it's like, man, I need more tangents. Where are my Scott tangents? There you go. Something we got some. <laughs> we got tangents. We got them. Yeah. All right. All right, uh, kill it, dude. Well, yeah. see you next week. Well, we'll try not to do two full hours next week. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I figure we we aim between thirty to an hour, probably. Yeah. Is a good length, kind of like your normal interviews. Yeah, something like that. All right. All right, we'll, killer we'll man. Well, Sunday thank you for everything, Eric. Yeah, no problem, man. All right, you guys. That's Eric Schuler. I'm Scott Horton. This is the Q&A show. You can uh, sign up for the feed um, for the interviews at scotthorton.org slash interviews and for this show at scotthorton.org slash show. Thanks again, man. Yep. See ya.